Good morning. How are you guys today? It's good to see you. Thanks for coming up. As we get older, we learn what's right and what's wrong. And deep down inside, God has worked into our heart a natural understanding of what's right and wrong. So even as you're learning, you kind of already know that it's good to share your toys and it's bad to hit other kids if you're angry. You kind of just know that. But as you get older, you learn it more and more. And what happens as we get older is we start to be nice to our brothers and sisters or nice to our friends. But then something happens. We look to our mom and dad to make sure that they saw how nice we're being. Right? This is because our sinful hearts are curved in on themselves. If you could picture an arrow that's going away from us, away from us, and then it turns around and comes right back to me. That's kind of what our sinful hearts are like. Even when we start showing really nice love to other people, we then want to make it all about me. And it's not about them anymore. And so today what we're talking about is how as we get older, we, we learn why we love and how we love in a way that actually does please God. A lot of times we think that if we make the right decision, our parents are going to be happy with us and they'll love us more. Or we think that if we do the right thing and we love our brothers and sisters, our friends, then God will love us more. That's not how it works. God expects that you and I would be perfect all the time, never once being selfish. And we just can't do that. That's why God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to come to this world to be perfect all the time. The one thing that makes Jesus different from us is that his heart always went out to others. It never curved back in and focused on itself. Jesus was always showing perfect love to, ev- to other people, not focusing on himself. And it's that perfect life of Jesus that was offered on the cross to pay for all the times that our hearts curve back in on ourselves, to pay for all the times that we're selfish, even when we're trying to be good, even when we're trying to be nice, Jesus paid for all those sins in full. And now God does something amazing. For people like you and me who believe in Jesus as their Savior, God takes Jesus' perfect life and he gives it to you. So when God looks at you, he does not see people who do bad things. He does not see people with hearts curved in on themselves anymore. He sees Jesus' perfect heart, always perfectly loving others. That's what God sees when he looks at you. And it's that good news that teaches us how to love others like Jesus loved us. The fact that God has saved us and made us perfect like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we understand that we are sinful. You have showed us this in your word. We we understand that even when we're trying to do good things, we, we figure out ways to sin. Forgive us for those sins. We know that you do for for the sake of your son, Jesus. Remind us each and every day that you not only take our sins away, you give us Jesus' perfect life too. You have made us perfect and holy. Help us to show our thanks for all that you have done for us in the way that we serve others, not looking for attention for ourselves, but looking to thank you and praise you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The portion of God's Word that we will focus our attention on for a little while this morning comes from a portion of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of our God. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You don't have to go back too far in history, just a couple decades, to a point when, in our culture, it was a pretty safe assumption that people had at least heard of Abraham, Moses, Maybe they weren't actively involved in a church. Maybe they weren't even sure if they were Christians or not. But they at least knew who Abraham was and knew who Moses was. There was an understanding of who these individuals are. But more and more, that's not the case. I'll never forget the first time my eyes were really open to this. It was my my second year of ministry. I was doing campus ministry, and and a a sister congregation down in Colorado had sent one of their members up to to the University of Wyoming, and, and we had gotten in touch real early. She was an active member in our campus ministry. And one day she came to me and she said, hey, two of my friends want to take Bible classes. Can, can we do like an adult instruction class? And I'll come with them. And I'm like, absolutely. And we start class, and very quickly I realize I'm making allusions to things that are clearly understood. Oh, you, you know this about, you know, my Abraham and Moses. And one of the girls just would look at me with these blank stares and she says, I, I, I've never heard that name before. Who's, who's Abraham? Who's, who's Moses? I've, I've never heard of these people. And from that moment, my perspective changed. There are a lot of people who have no idea who a person like Abraham is. They They have no preconceptions about what Abraham was like or what he did. And in a way, it was interesting to compare a first-time impression to the accounts of Abraham to that of my own or maybe ours as we look at these accounts over and over again. And maybe people like us have heard 
even the account of Abraham and Lot a number of times. That comes up in Sunday school curriculums. That's been focused on in vacation Bible schools. I would not at all be surprised if most of you had heard that account before. The people Jesus is preaching to on the sermon on, in the Sermon on the Mount, they definitely knew who Abraham was. And they had a very specific view of Abraham. Of course, they were all descendants of Abraham. And more than that, they were proof of one of God's promises to Abraham. You remember God's promises to Abraham? God had picked the most unlikely of couples. When you look at all the couples who were descended from Noah and his family um, a couple of generations after they got off the ark, of all the families, to focus the promise of the descendant of Eve, the, the head crusher, the one who would come and destroy the devil and his power. Of all the families to focus that promise on, God chose a 75-year-old man and his 65-year-old barren wife. And God gave them this amazing promise saying, you're going to have a son. And then he made them wait 25 years so that they would constantly have to wonder, is God going to actually do what he said? Is God actually a God who keeps his promises or does he just make them? and then not keep them. These people that Jesus is preaching to, they are the descendants of Abraham and Sarah's miraculous son. The the son that God blessed Abraham and Sarah with when Sarah was 90 and barren her whole life. God said, you're going to have a son, Abraham, a son from your own marriage, And your son is going to turn into a great nation. And to that nation, I'm going to give a land of their own to live in. And from your descendants, every nation on earth will be blessed. And the people that Jesus is speaking to, they are that nation. As numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, this miraculous nation, living in the land that God promised to their ancestor, Abraham, they are the fulfillment of the promise. And when they look back at Abraham, they are proud. And they look at him as this great example. And they had begun to forget. They had begun to forget what to look at in the accounts of their ancestor, Abraham they began to do what we all do. Whenever we focus on any story, we are wired for narratives. Whether you like to read books or watch movies or or even watch sports, these are all stories that play out. Some right before our very eyes, live, some written down by gifted authors, some put on the big screen or on the the small screen for us to watch and follow along. We get drawn to the characters that we can relate to the most and our focus is on the morality that we see. We get drawn to the characters that are the, the best example, the most virtuous, the ones that we strive to be like, the ones that inspire us We are drawn to those characters. We want to be like them. We want to mimic them. And that's exactly what happened with the descendants of Abraham. What can easily happen with you and me too, that our attention will be drawn 
to Abraham and Lot and see, boy, what a selfless man this Abram was. He, he had this dispute with his nephew and he says, well, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. What a great example. We should all be more like him. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to drive home in our text. He's trying to correct this faulty view of, of what's right. This faulty view of righteousness. And perhaps the most important verse, or the most important word in our text is the very first one. In English, it's the word for. F-O-R. In Greek, it's this little word gar. It's one of the first words we learn in college when we're studying Greek. It's this word that will follow a point to make a greater point. And so since we have this little word gar, for indeed, Jesus says, we have to just take a brief look at what he said right before this in verses 17 to 19 to set up this greater point that he's about to make. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is reminding the the people listening to him that God's law can't be changed. It can't be modified. Different discussion for a different day, but in our nation, in, in our culture of education, over the last 20, 30 years or so, there's been a bit of a shift in how we view standards. Some schools don't do grades at all. And we could debate the merits of this. This is a, a different discussion. But in academics, you know what a curve is, right? Grading on a curve. Basically, the standards are tweaked, adjusted, so that more people succeed and, and less people fail. Jesus' point here is not to talk about the validity of educational practices, but Jesus' point here is to say God's law does not work that way. You can't change it so that more people can, can succeed. And in fact, Jesus says, I did not come to modify God's law at all. I did not come to make it easier for you to get into heaven. No, instead, I came to fulfill it. And then he goes on to make this point, teaching us, how difficult it is to live up to God's perfect standards. Listen to the, to, the, to the next verses again. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. This is something that our recent confirmands know very well. When we study the fifth commandment and we talk about murder, It's not just taking a life. Jesus here teaches it. It's taught in the Old Testament. It is very clear that to break the fifth commandment is not just ending life, but a lack of love, hatred. The law is not just a visible standard that one must abide by. It is deeply spiritual. It is internal. 
the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the, the Jewish people that Jesus is preaching to, they thought, I've never killed anyone, so I'm good. I'm doing it right. I'm living up to God's standard. Everything is happening correctly. But Jesus says, no. Hatred in the heart receives the same punishment as taking a life. And then he goes on. He says, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And that's a a transliteration there. They just take the the word, Raka, four-letter word. This was a four-letter word in Jesus' day that was not able to be, that was not supposed to be said. In fact, they were so serious about you not using this word that if you used it, you were not only going to get a, a stern look from passerbys, you were not only going to get a, a, a stern talking to from your grandma, they were going to drag you in front of the Jewish ruling council and you were going to have to answer for it. And Jesus says, not only is that word a problem, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And it's interesting, this is the word we get moron from. So maybe grandma would frown if you used a four-letter word around her and you refrain from those those words. You don't say the four-letter words, but maybe you're known to say, what a moron. I've, I've done that. We, we all do that. We, we, we maybe don't say the bad word, but we, we talk bad about people. We look down on them. We belittle them. Jesus says, same thing. You think Raka's bad. Moron's just as bad. Just because it doesn't have the the same cultural connotation doesn't mean a thing. What's the point? People in Jesus' day, people in our day, we tend to look at the humans who look good to us and say, that's what I want to be like. And if I'm anything like that, then I'm, I'm doing it right. I'm righteous. I look good. Jesus says, that's the wrong kind of righteous. That, that's not the kind of righteous that the Father demands. That's not the kind of righteous that it takes to get into heaven. If that's your view of what's right, you are in danger of the fire of hell. No, the fire of hell is certain for you. It's not good enough. It's the wrong kind of righteous. And this is why Jesus came. Not to change the standards, not to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. To fill it up, to do it perfectly every single moment of his life. The law has this burdening, binding effect. When Jesus teaches us how to really view the law, that it's not just murder but hatred, that it's not just a bad four-letter word, but it's any kind of of bad talk about our brothers and sisters, we begin to feel this great burden of our sin, this bondage. And so Jesus came to fulfill the law, to perfectly obey God every moment of his life, to be the right kind of righteous, every moment of his life from conception to his death. So that when he hung on that cross, what we see hanging on that cross is a truly righteous, innocent God-man. The only one who was ever the right kind of righteous. It's this Son of God who hung on that cross and endured the punishment that our lack of righteousness deserves. This innocent Jesus suffered hell. This innocent, flawless Jesus died our death. And then he rose from the dead to assure us that sin was truly paid for, gone forever. 
Jesus is the right kind of righteous. He's the Savior that we need. He cleanses us of all the wrong kinds of righteousness that plagues our lives, and then he gives us his own. He makes you, he makes me the right kind of righteous. All by his grace. None of it's deserved. This is God's love for you and me. And it's this grace where God makes you and me the right kind of righteous that changes the way we look at stories. It changes the way we look at biblical narratives. We look at the account in our Old Testament reading of of Abram and Lot. And we don't just see Abram being selfless. And we don't look at Lot and say, boy, he made a really bad decision. We see God. We see the God who flooded them with blessings, who gave them so much more than the promises that he had given. He said, Abram, you're going to have a son, and your son's going to turn into a great nation, and I'm going to give your descendants a land to live in, and the offspring of the woman, the descendant of Eve, the one through whom all nations on earth will be blessed, is going to be your heir And God continued to pile blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon his chosen people. They were so blessed, the land could not support them for their possessions were so great, they were not able to stay together. You look at the scriptures and you see God for people. You see God blessing people. You see God making promises to his people and keeping them every single time. It changes the way you view God's word. You see God in action and by his grace, people responding in faith. That's what Abram's doing. He knows God has provided for everything he could ever possibly want or imagine, far more than he deserved. He deserved nothing from the hand of God. And so he says, Lot, you first. You pick. You, you go to the right, I go to the left. You go to the left, I go to the right. Whatever you choose is fine by me because he knew that his God would keep his promises, that his God would do what was best every time. When you look at God's word and you find an unbearable burden or, or bondage in prison, know what you're seeing You're seeing God's law and it is burdening you and binding you the way God's law always does. Now look for Jesus because he's there. On every page, Old Testament and New, look for God's promises of the Christ in the Old Testament. Look at the Christ in the New. See the innocent Christ who fulfilled God's law perfectly for you. See the innocent Christ who gives his innocence, his righteousness to you. As you see Jesus, see what God sees in you. Because as you see Jesus on the pages of Scripture, that's what God sees in you. The right kind of righteousness. Amen.